You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Epic Fail. This series explores some of the Bible's most spectacular disasters to learn how we can rebound from life's most disappointing and discouraging moments. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Today we're going to start a new series called Epic Fail. And I do mean epic fail, not just your kind of garden variety fail, but like uh, when success should have been obvious or reasonable, our experience was complete and utter disaster. Uh, Like a few people here we'll see on the screen, um, who wants to be a millionaire? And so the question was, which of the following is the largest? Now, while an elephant is in fact large, it's it's not quite as large as the moon. Maybe it was a half moon that day. I don't know. But anyway, uh, we have some more. Don't... So this guy, so all across the, the, the country, there is an outcry from bikers so that they could share the space of the road. You know, there's like biking lanes. And, and for those who don't bike, have been confused about why don't they want to just ride on the sidewalk. This is why they don't want to ride on the sidewalk, because, because that, that happens. Um, now, I'll just let you look at those pictures for a second. This isn't just an epic fail. This is the, a legendary fail. This is the fail of legends. It's legendary. Do we have, is that, is that it? Okay. Let's say that again. And again. One more time. Okay. Now, Here's, here, I want us to have a little bit of fun, if you guys are a little bit brave, is I want you to share your epic fail uh, on social media. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just epic, hashtag my uh, epic, or excuse me, epic fail my Jubilee Church. Um, or, so you do that, yours, or you just grab the, the, your spouse's phone and, and then do it that way. So that's fine too, and um, might be a good time to change your password on your phone. But... Hey, if, if, if the video guy, if I didn't pay the video guys off, like I would, I mean, I would be probably a minor star on YouTube as well because I've done some pretty, I mean, on this stage, I've fallen off this stage. Like in a very holy moment when everyone's, I've fallen off this stage. And I've said some things, um, some inopportune words at very, 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 very inopportune times. Uh, it was it's pretty bad. And the one, there was, then the, the one thing I really remember on this stage in particular, uh, one time I, for three, two or three minutes, I, inter, I was introducing this guest speaker that we had. And, and the whole time my fly was unzipped. And um, he preached on transparency. And so we was, it's not what I had in mind, but we, we uh, and it was just one of those days. It was just one of those days where I just had to tuck in my shirt. Like I just, I couldn't just leave it untucked like I usually do. I just, but with the truth is, is we all have our um, fails and even our epic fails. And for some of us, uh, for some of us, it could be a relationship. Like you had this, this great relationship going, a friend. And, and when the chips were down, you did something um, that just blew up the relationship. You, your epic fail was relationship. Or it could be your, your marriage. You could think of like, well, my marriage was an epic fail or is an epic fail. I mean, you were warned. I mean, that his three girlfriends came alongside and said, Honey, let me tell you something about him. 
And you thought it would be different, but it wasn't different. Or maybe everybody was like, man, this is the person. This is a girl. This is a guy. You should definitely do this. And this is going to be happily ever after. And it hasn't been. So your marriage has been your epic fail. Or maybe it's a financial fail. You just did something really dumb financially. And, um, or a career. You just, you know, you knew you shouldn't have done that, but you did it. And it just was disastrous for your career. Or parenting fail. I mean, you go on and on. But whatever... Wherever you come from, what is universally true, regardless of your background, your race, religion, gender, um, is that we all fail. And if you're new to Christianity, what brings us together is not our successes. It's actually our failures. Like when we come here every morning, every Sunday, what we, what we're, ce- we're not celebrating the fact that we've never failed. We're celebrating the one, in spite of the fact of our failures, loves us nonetheless. What brings us together is not our success, it's our failures. Jesus loves the world, so he loves failures. Red, yellow, black, and white. Failures are precious in his sight. Jesus loves all the failures of the world. He loves you and I. He loves failures, epic failures. And the people in the Bible were no different. Unlike other ancient literature, um, the Bible doesn't hide the flaws of its heroes, but actually goes at great length. Uh, to let us know about the flaws of these theories. So in this series, we're going to take a look at some epic fails uh, that we read about in Scripture in order to learn in our epic, how do we, how do we respond in our epic fails. And, and I want to ask you for something. I want to encourage you to be uh, a student. I want to encourage you to be uh, 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 not a critic, but a student of your own failure. Because here's, the, here's kind of the good news. It's kind of good news. It's a little... Naughty, I guess, but no matter how bad your epic fail is, there's always someone who has a worse failure than you. And what could, that could lead you to do is to, to, when you hear about these failures, is to be thinking about somebody else. When actually, I'll say, let's not do that. Let's not be the critic Let's be the student. I mean, Jesus said that, yank the plank. You know, take the plank out of your own eye before you start messing with other people's specs. And let's do that. Let's lean into that. This time. I mean, maybe you're new here and you're thinking, well, that's why I left the church. Because when I had my epic fail, the people around me, the Christians around me, weren't compassionate. They weren't sympathetic to my story, but they were, they were critical. And I was like, well, if that's what Christianity is like, I don't want anything to do with that. But I just want to say, A, we own, we, need, we, that's, we deserve that. We deserve that. But B, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity, our life in God, our basis in God is, is not somehow that we've escaped failure, but we've ha- received mercy. And so we want to be people who show that mercy. I mean, just that point. I'm just going to pause here for a second. I mean, this has nothing to do with the sermon today, but just imagine if the church just got that one thing right. Just that one thing. We've received mercy. Let's... Let's give it. Let's not be critics. Let's be students. So let's lean into our failure, no matter how big you think it is or how small you think your failure is. Let's lean into it. And so this week, we're going to take a look at the life of the late, great King David, uh, who had an epic, epic fail. David was described by the Bible as, as being a man after God's own heart. Um, he studied the word. He hid the word in his heart, David did. Um, he played music, he wrote poetry, the Bible says that he was handsome in face and form, 
And he, uh, he was the total package. He was compassionate. He was courageous. I mean, if, if Daryl on The Walking Dead played the harp and studied the Bible, I mean, that's what we're basically talking about here. Um, and then, as you know, David went on to kill Goliath, and he just rose to meteoric fame, just massive, massive fame. And he led Israel from obscurity to, to prominence. And during this rise, I mean, he just became super, super famous. Uh, King Saul was not super happy about it. And, and so King Saul and David, they kind of had this cat and mouse game where, uh, you know, David was always running away from Saul. And Saul was always looking for him. And David was kind of this Robin Hood kind of character. And uh, he had a group of mighty men. You know, Robin Hood had his merry men, David had his mighty men, and I like a good laugh like the next guy, but hey, I'll take mighty men over merry men. And David's mighty men, he had 37 of them, and one of those, these guys were loyal, I mean loyal to the core, because David was an honorable man, David was a very good man, David uh, expressed a lot of loyalty toward others, and they were very loyal to him. There was one time where he says, you know what, I think I'm a little thirsty, a little parched. And so three of them go into the enemy's camp to draw him some water and brought him back to David. They were that loyal. And one of these guys was named Uriah the Hittite. Now, Saul dies, David becomes king, and he's like one of the big success stories that Israel's ever experienced. And as king, you know, he can do what he wants. He sent everybody else out to war, and he just kind of hung around the palace and did his thing. And one day, he's walking on top of the palace, um, Roof, and he notices this beautiful, naked woman. And he's like, I want that. He sent someone to go get her. And one of his advisors was like, hold on a second. Do you know that that is Uriah's wife? But he didn't care. He wanted her more than he wanted to be loyal to Uriah. So the king brings her into his bedroom, has an affair with her. She goes home. A couple months later, this is where it gets all Jerry Springer. A couple months later, a couple weeks later probably, she finds out that she conceived and sends word back uh, to King David that she's pregnant. Now there's a problem because Uriah's been out to war. He's an honorable man. He's been out to war. And um, she's going to show... And people are going to know that there's a problem and David is going to get found out. So he sends word to bring Uriah off the battlefield because David needs to cover his tracks and he needs to do it quickly. He needs to somehow get Uriah to come back and lay down and sleep with his wife so that everyone would think that the baby is Uriah's. Uh, so he's got it. He's in a hurry. So he brings Uriah back and he's like, you know, he's trying to can't lead on that he knows anything. So he says, Uriah, hey, tell me about the war. So Uriah starts telling about the war, and he's like, uh-huh, okay, that's good, okay, great, okay, here, here's what I want to do. I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home, and I want to wash your feet, um, which is code for go home, make yourself comfortable, eat some food, have some wine, put on a little Lionel Richie, and just kind of like do what comes natural. Like just, that's the kind of idea here, because I need to cover my tracks. But Uriah says, how could I? How could I? I've got men risking their life on the battlefield and they're living in tents. I'm supposed to go home and uh, bathe and, and to be with my wife, to comfort myself with my wife and sleep in my bed. No. 
He goes home. He falls asleep on the doorstep of his own home. Does not touch his wife because he is an honorable man. King David is like, well, I got to take this to the next level. So he says, okay, I'll get him drunk. He brings him to his palace the next day. Feeds him a bunch of food. Gives him a bunch of wine. Gets him drunk. Uriah goes home. uh, Sleeps on the doorstep. Willfully (laughs) sleeps on the doorstep of his own house. Not accidentally. Um, Because he's a... He's an honorable man. You guys are just getting it. I get it. And so the, uh, <laughs> at least they got it. And so the, uh, he's an honorable man. And so D- David's like, okay, I got to take this to, to the next level. And he took it to a level that he probably thought he would never, ever take it. And he sends Uriah, one of his mighty men, one of his loyal men. He sends him out back into battle. And he gives him a note. And he, a note to give to his commander. And he knew he knew on the honor of Uriah that Uriah would never open this letter because Uriah was an honorable man. And in this letter that Uriah ends up giving to the commander as David commanded, it said, put Uriah in the front line where the battle is the heaviest. And once he's there, pull everyone back so that he dies. And that's what the commander did. And that's what happened to Uriah. He died. Bathsheba heard about this news and she went into a season of mourning. And after that season of mourning, David took Bathsheba to be his wife. And she bore David a son. And in David's mind, he got away with it. Yet, the Lord knew. And in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, it just says, This displeased the Lord. This displeased. That's, that's not good. You don't, you, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, and you do not displease the Lord. So the Lord sent a prophet named Nathan, and Nathan comes to him, and, and the way Nathan kind of handles this issue is he says, hey, I got a little problem I need to help you out with. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll help you out with. There's this guy who's like super wealthy, he's got, he's got everything he could ever want, he's got all the food he'd ever want, money, all that, but he's going to throw a feast, and he needs a goat, he needs... Uh, an animal to kill for his feast. But instead of using all of one, any one of his, he goes to the very poor man who only has one, and he kills that goat. And David hears this, and he is outraged. He's like, this man must die. And Nathan looks at him and is like, that's you, bro. You did that. And in this moment, David is plunged into his own darkness, and he finally experiences the horror of his own sin. It's that moment with self-discovery, you know, the horror of self-discovery where someone puts a mirror in your face and you finally see who you are and what you've done. And it's not pretty. David has this moment. And then we get, we, this is out of 2 Samuel 12, 13. It just simply said, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now that is a summary of Psalm 51 that we read about and we'll get to here in a moment. So David murders, he lies, he on the low end commits adultery and perhaps rapes this woman. Hey God, I've sinned. Okay, what's God's response? The Lord has put away your sin. What? What? Wait, 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 hold on. Time out, time out. 
David murdered, lied, committed adultery, and that's it. Just shh, shh, it's gone. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. It's not the only time God's. I mean, God does that. Things like this all the time. Remember the thief on the cross? We don't know what the thief had done, but if you're on a cross, you've done something bad. One thief is like, you know, talking smack. The other thief is like, um, we deserve this. Jesus, will you remember me? And Jesus just looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Just like that. Just like that. What is he? Is God just like sweeping us under the rug? Is God just saying, hey, just let bygones be bygones? It's not just toward God. It's not just toward Uriah, who's in a grave. It's not just to Bathsheba, who's violated to this baby. Two ways we reject the grace of God in our lives. One is we think that our sin isn't all that bad. Uh, Our sin isn't all that bad. And we don't really need God's forgiveness. So we have this superiority complex. So we never actually receive the grace of God because we just don't think we need it. Another way we reject the grace of God is that we think our sin is too bad and God's grace isn't good enough. Both are in rejection and assault on the goodness of God. Romans 6.23 declares that there's not a sin that is too small that doesn't deserve death. If you've had an epic fail, or maybe a legendary fail, or just a tiny little bitty fail, all of it deserves death. But yet, Isaiah 59 says that there's not a sin that's too great as, as though that God, the grace of God could not redeem. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You cannot outdo the grace of God. Now, here's a question I've got. Is how, does, how, do, how do I activate that kind of grace in my life? Because I want, I want to experience I want to experience that because not everyone does. David did. I want to experience that. I want to experience that kind of mercy. I want to experience that kind of um, grace and mercy that's, I mean, I would say scandalous. It doesn't even seem right. So how did David get it and not other people get it? What's different about David? Well, in a word... It's called repentance. And that's what Psalm 51 is about. Psalm 51 unlocks a level of blessing. Psalm 51 is trying to explain to us how we can unlock a blessing in our life in our epic fails that is almost scandalous. So what I want to do is I just want to spend the rest of this time just talking about this word repentance out of Psalm 51 in light of what David had did in committing, I mean, this is severe. I mean, nobody has a position, no one in America can have a position that David had. No one could have that wealth or that power, and he had it, and he abused it in the worst way. So no one here can match David. 
David's failure. No one can. But we can, which should give us hope that all of us are candidates for the grace of God. So what is repentance? Let's take a look at that. If you're a note taker, um, it's time. <laughs> uh, and it'd be helpful if you had your Bible open there. To, if you don't have a Bible, it's a black one. Uh, Psalm 51. Or you can, if you're really good with your thumb, you can use your phone. Flip up and down. We're gonna, I'm going to be referring to some verses and going kind of quickly, so it might help. Uh, so what is repentance? Well, number one, it's, it's t- turn to God. It's turning to God. Repentance is change at every level. It's change at the heart level, the head level, and the actions. How I feel, how I think, how I act. It's change at every level, and it starts with turning to God. Check out verse 1. He cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 4 says it a little bit more plainly. He says, I have sinned against you and you alone. Now that seems kind of off, but what about Uriah? You think you've kind of done something to him? What about Bathsheba? What about this baby? It's not saying that they weren't hurt, but what makes sin, sin, and this is huge. What makes sin, sin is it's an attack, is our attack on the nature and character of God. And I'm going to explain that in case you don't, you're not like, oh yeah, I get that. The difference between, and it's the difference too, this is a big one, it's the difference between remorse and true repentance. Check out 2 Corinthians uh, 7. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, check this word out, without regret. I don't know how many, I, I want to, I don't know if you do, wouldn't it be amazing to leave this place today and not have any regret? I mean, there's nothing. It's a, you think about what you've done in your life. I don't, to, to live without any regret. To finally lay your head on your pillow tonight. And when you're all alone, not have those thoughts haunt you over and over and over and over again. How, how would that feel? We'll get to that. Without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is remorse. It's regret. It's simply just regretting how your actions affect other people. Uh, so, like it's so it's like you go to somebody's house and you spill red wine all over their brand new white carpet, and you just you just feel bad. You feel terrible, and actually, you know, it makes you uh, you know kind of beat yourself up. Worldly grief doesn't produce life. But it produces death. It just remorse just causes you to regret the consequences of your. You know, you beat yourself. I'm so clumsy. I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did that. Da, 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 da. Remorse makes you hate yourself, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything to make the situation better. You just live with this this hatred of what you've done in yourself. And so you, you go back to the house, and like it's not as bright red as it used to be, but it's still a little red. Oh, there it is again. I can't believe I did that. Remorse gets you to hate yourself. And this is why the word repent isn't so popular. is because it gets confused with remorse. And nobody, nobody likes to feel bad about themselves. And maybe these feelings are even beginning to resurface in you. It's like, you know, this is why I left the church in the first place. Because Christianity is always making me feel terrible. It's always asking me to repent. It's always making me feel bad about who I am. And you only felt liberate, liberated when you walked away from the church. 
But repentance and remorse are two different things. And I hope that you get that today. Repentance is not simply being remorseful about the consequences of your actions, but it's turning from yourself and turning to God. Because sin isn't just breaking the rules. It is a ta- it's an attack on the character and nature of God. To lie, to steal, to murder, to covet is a second sin that gets born out of a first sin which is believing that God is not good, loving, and able. So how did this whole thing get started? Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember the lie that Satan told Eve, that Satan told Adam. God doesn't love you. God doesn't know what's best for you. God doesn't want you to reach your full potential. But I do. I think you should go your own way. I think you should... Do it by yourself. True repentance isn't first feeling remorseful about the consequences of your sin. It's simply hating your sin because you realize that the true darkness of sin isn't the effect on people, but it's the attack on the nature and the character of God. Remorse gets you to hate yourself. Repentance gets you to hate your sin. And there's a huge difference. And so repentance is first, you turn to God. Secondly, you confess. Secondly, you confess your sin. David can't get his sin out of his mind. Check out verse 3. It's like branded on his conscience. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I mean, this tape just keeps playing over and over and over in his head. He can't get it out of his mind. But it's not just the acts of sin because he realizes his, how dark his heart when he refers to his inborn corruption. Sin so surrounds me, surely I must have been born into sin. Surely this must have been the condition from which I was conceived. It's not just that I choose to sin or commit sin, but it is in my nature to do so. For him to have committed adultery and murder were just expressions of something much worse. That was his nature. So if God doesn't rescue him, he's just going to do more and more evil. So the horror that came upon him was like, man, I, not just that I've done these things, but I am capable of these things. I'm actually capable of worse. There's some serious soul searching to go that deep. I hope you've gone that deep. Which is why he doesn't ask for a redo, but he asks for a rebirth. Remorseful people still have enough confidence in their own ability and their own righteousness that a second chance is all they want. Just give me another chance, coach. Put me back in the game. I won't drop it this time. Repentant people know that a second chance won't do them any good. Because sin is not just something they do, it's a part of their nature. They can't help but sin. And this is, again, this is the difference between a religious person and a Christian. A religious person just wants a second chance. I won't mess up this time, I promise. I just need a second chance. I need a, another opportunity. But they have, they have way too much confidence. They've way overestimated themselves, and they way under, underestimated God. A Christian is a person who finally realizes that they are a terrible leader of their life. And they could have all the second chances in the world, but they still won't get it right. They need a new heart. They need it to be reworked from the inside out. 
We all have our epic fails. We're all in the same level playing field when it comes to this. Nobody's above anyone else. No one's beneath. We're all in the same level playing field. The difference, though, in this room is how you respond to your failure. Are you remorseful or are you repentant? Look at David's prayer for, I mean, he's just like, he, he just wants to be, he's washed me thoroughly from my iniquity. Verse two, and cleanse me from my sin. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop. Now, everybody knows what hyssop is. For those who don't, it's a branch used by the priest to sprinkle blood over a home. So if a home had someone who's diseased in it to make it, they, they would take this branch and they would put blood on it to declare it clean. David's crying out, just purge me from this disease, this death. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Here's another aspect, the third aspect of repentance is a desire to be different. A desire to be different. Christianity, because this is, Christianity is not a series of sinning and then say you're sorry. Then sinning and say you're, this cycle of sin, okay, you know, you mess up. I'm sorry. You, you, you go do the same thing. I'm sorry. I mess, you, know, you, keep, you keep messing up saying you're sorry. I keep messing up saying you're sorry. That's not Christianity. That's country music, all right? So that's, there's, a, there's a huge difference. Any country music fans? Anybody? You're willing to admit that? Anybody? Sorry? I like country music. I'm, there's a song about this. There's a lot of songs. I mean, the, there's only two places where Jesus and music intersect in a church. And in country music. I know we have some country music fans out in Washington. I'm a backseat sinner at a tent revival. She loves me like she loves her Bible. Because she loves me like Jesus loves me. Jesus drank his wine. I bet you and I will get along just fine. She loves me like Jesus loves me. That's country music, but it's not Christianity. It's not this, I'm a mess. God will forgive me. So, so it's, I'm going to go fill up my sin bucket. I'm going to go to church, pastor, priest, whatever. I'm going to dump my sin bucket so I can turn around and I can go fill it back up again. With no desire to be different. That's not repentance. That's not repentance. Repentance is this, I, I don't like what I've done, and I don't like who I am, and I want to be different. I mean, check out David. I mean, he's just crying out for renewal. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know, I, I don't want to be this fragile, inconsistent self that I used to be, this unstable self. I need to be new. I want to be different. I don't want to be like that. Fourth aspect of repentance is that it's about joy. It's about joy. Check out verse 8. It's rejo- he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Repentance leads to rejoicing. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold with me a willing spirit. He's just not wanting to like, hey, okay, I'll obey the rules next time. I want to, I want to want to obey the rules. I just don't want to feel bad when the consequences are put in my face, but I want to, I want to want this. 
And praise is what God does, God gives us when the obstacles are taken out, the obstacles of sin are taken out of the way. Praise is like a natural response. I mean, one, I mean, it's just kind of a tragedy to me. Like, you know, there, there are a lot of churches, and I'm not trying to be critical. There's a lot of churches, and I hope, I hope we're not one of them, is where, you know, you go in there, and it's just, it's, it's, almost, it's almost a quasi-gloomy place. There's, there's, no, there's no clapping and singing and dancing and, and rejoicing and shouting. You know why? Because people hear the truth of the gospel, and it makes them feel bad. And they just feel remorseful. And it's just like, you know, just the Bible just beats them over the head. You ever heard of Bible thumpers? I mean, that's what they mean, just thump people on the head. And so they're just like, oh, you know, they could have gospel accuracy. They could have gospel understanding, but not have this gospel atmosphere. You and I, rightly understanding what God has done for us, the fact that he's, that we have epically failed, that we've not only committed acts of sin that have seriously damaged other people, but we've had this brutal attack on the nature and character of God, and he pulls that away from us. Praise is the natural response. And the reason why churches cannot be, are not full of joy, are not full of praise, is because they're just remorseful. They're not repentant. They've not experienced salvation that leads with no regret. Because it's, Jesus loves me, but I gotta, I feel really bad about this other thing. That's just being remorseful. That's not being repentant. Repentant is going to God. Repentant is confessing it. It's desiring to be God. God, make me different. And what he does, he puts praise on your mouth. And you're, all of a sudden, you don't mean to, but all of a sudden you're rejoicing, you're shouting, you're praising, you're singing, you're clapping. David's like, man, I'll get more indignified than this. I won't, but David will. Um, and then secondly, then part of praise is evangelism. Part of praise is evangelism. You verbally celebrate with others what you're the most excited about. God thrills your eyes. Man, you will never believe what happened to me. I just had them, this, such an amazing day. I got the parking spot I wanted. Really? What's the most amazing thing that's happened to you? When, you? when you come face to face with the reality of what Christ has done in your heart, it leads to praise, it leads to evangelism. How is this possible? How is this all possible? Seems like too good to be true. Look at verse 9. David says, hide your face from my sins. But then check out the contrast in verse 11. It says, cast me not or hide me not from your presence. Um, that word presence, the Hebrew word there is panim, which literally means face. The face of a person. Uh, so in verse 9 he says, 
hide your face from my sin, in verse 11, he says, but don't hide your face from me. When someone really wrongs you, you don't even want to look at them. I don't want to even look at you. I don't, to, I don't even see you right now. Get in, your, get in your room. I don't even want to look at you right now. Some parents would say. <laughs> Not me. You can't look at someone's sin and look at their face at the same time. If you see their sin, you can't look at their face. It's a good, good little lesson on what is repentance. What does it mean to repent? Excuse me, what does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to forgive someone? It means you can look them in the face. If you can't, if you can't look someone in the face, I've forgiven you, but I can't look at you. Ephesians 4.30 says to be t- uh, is to, to forgive one another, to be tenderhearted. That word tenderhearted means to open your heart back up to them. Be vulnerable again. It's a cycle of forgiveness. That is another message and a good one at that. But we're not there yet. What does it mean for us to receive this repentance? Well, it means it means that we need God to not hide his face from us, but we really need him to hide his face from our sin. How did that happen? Would he sweep it under the rug, let bygones be bygones? No. God answered David's prayer, and he answers our prayer, but it comes at a great expense. When Jesus was on the cross, and his arms were stretched out, and he was experiencing unimaginable physical, emotional, and even spiritual pain, he looked to the Father for help, but the Father turned his face away. He did not look back at the Son. It was the first time when the Son looked to the Father for help that the Father did not look at the Son. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And make no mistake, Jesus on the cross was forsaken. And now we know why. The reason why Jesus was forsaken on the cross is that the Father was hiding his face from Jesus so that he could hide his face from your sin and from mine. He was hiding his face from Jesus so he can hide his face from the sin of David. You can't. And he can't look at them both at the same time. Well, where did our sin go? How, how, you know, where, what happened to it? Well, our sin is hidden in Christ. He that knew no sin became our sin. What that means is, is on the cross, the, the, the murderer that David was, Jesus was. The adulterer that David was, Jesus. And because he took that sin upon himself... It was accounted to him no more in David. The father could look, could not hide his face because he hid his face from Jesus. He took the punishment of his all, the iniquity of his all, and he laid it upon him. And it was the Lord's will to crush him. And when he died, he took our sin with him. And he was raised to new life on our He bore the punishment for our sin. And that's a reality that David, even though in his veiled understanding, asked and wanted to be planted deep within him. What, if, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's not asking for a second chance. It's asking for a second birth. 
It's letting go of your old life and, and letting go and grabbing a hold of a new one. It's realizing you're a terrible leader of your life and you don't need a second or third or fourth or fifth or a millionth chance. You need a new life. It needs to be inside out. What, a, what, if, what, what if instead of feeling remorseful and bad about your sin, you repented of your sin? Because that's the key that unlocks it. Jesus loves the world. Jesus died for the world. But the only ones who receive that gift are the ones who, well, they receive that gift by, by admitting that they need it. And to admit that you need it means that you have emphatically sinned against others and against God. First against God, secondly against others. Acts of sin, nature of sin. It's to turn to God. It's to confess your sin. It's to desire to be different. And then finally to rejoice and be glad. He wants to make you glad. He wants to cause you to rejoice. He wants to give you salvation. Check this. Without regret. What would that be like? To live your life without regret? Wow. Much lighter you would feel. It can be yours in Christ Jesus.